invite you to open up your Bibles to Psalm chapter 73, or Psalm 73. Not really chapters per se. Uh, as you look throughout the Psalms, they're prayers, they are hymns to be sung, which is pretty interesting with some of the hymns when you get especially to think, uh, Psalms like the imprecatory Psalms, where there is a lot of judgment language, and you kind of look at that language and you think, even some of these were meant to be sung. Um, and it's just interesting to think about. Psalm 73, I uh, want to just take a brief break from our narrative series uh, and do what I would like to do every now and then, which is come to at least one psalm and just go through the hymn or the prayer um, and, and see what, the, the, what application we are supposed to take from it. Specifically tonight, uh, really, I, I think Psalm 73 is a very good example of how God's people get through certain maybe negative emotions. I was reading a book uh, on evangelism recently and a topic, one of the chapters was specifically about doubt and how to combat that in ourselves and then even more so as you are trying to talk in, about Christ to others, whether it be just encouraging those uh, one another or trying to bring others into that kingdom. And so I think Psalm 73 is a very good example of uh, someone who is a part of God's kingdom who experiences really strong doubt. Uh, and we're going to go throughout the entire psalm. We're going to take it just in sections, break it up into three different sections. But here you have uh, Asaph who was really in a very interesting, to say the least, but a very beautiful uh, position in Israel. As we're going to see in a moment, he was one of the people who got to be in a very uh, special Role when it came to the worship of God within uh, the the or closer to the holy place than than any of the rest of Israel could get to him and the rest of his tribe. There were uh, people who were specifically designated to uh, give this beautiful uh, worship to God in in music and especially with Asaph, he was one of the people who would experience that in a very uh, close way. But even someone in that position can get very low. Uh, and can struggle with something that all of us struggle with from time to time. Um, doubt, I think, is something that is very perversely glorified in our culture. Doubt is, especially, uh, especially within the, the skeptic perspective, it is just it, it is something to be held up in high regard. It is something to be proud of. Uh, have you know, just questioning absolutely everything. Um, now, I will say, just because. It is perversely glorified. We need to make that point. Um, but at the same time, that does not mean that Christians will never experience doubt. We will from time to time. And hopefully as we go throughout this song, we'll be able to look at a couple things, a couple um, lessons that will help us deal with that doubt as it creeps into our lives. So just three points tonight. And the first I just want to start with by reading the first few verses here of Psalm 73. Psalm 73, <clears throat> beginning in verse 1. It says, a psalm of Asaph, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They, they have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Now, 
from the very uh, beginning of the lesson here, the first thing that I want to make mention of is, and I think you see it especially in these first nine verses, is the fact that when doubt arises in especially a godly person's heart, what it does ultimately, I think, is distract. It, it tends to blind people. And all throughout, uh, I want to make that point. But in verse 1, look at how the psalmist starts. He starts with an acknowledgement of fact. He says from the very beginning, right before he gets into all of this doubt that he's going to feel and all these negative feelings, he says, surely, certainly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And so, I mean, you, you read through something like that, and, and even today, that, that is a notion that extends into today. Under the New Covenant, we, when we pray to God, we can pray that those, essentially those same words. We know that God is good to his people. And we know that God is, is uh, watching over his people uh, specifically, preferentially. Now, we could start our prayers in the exact same way, and incidentally, I think that we could continue on in the same way, because even though it starts with that fact, how easy is it, or how often have we just gone right down that, that rabbit hole, following that, uh, that negative emotion of doubt into the darkest corners of our mind? And, and so I wanted to start with this just because there are, I think that this is one of the effects of doubt is specifically we can know a lot of things. We can know a lot of facts about God and we can know a lot of reassuring things that, that are said. But just because they can be reassuring doesn't mean that, you know, every time we say it, we're going to be revitalized. There are moments where we can be blinded to that reassurance, that confidence booster that scripture is supposed to have on our hearts and on our minds. Um, going on past that in verses two through five, it uses doubt, uses what we see and feel in the moment, I would say, to question eternal truths. Now, all of this really just builds, uh, builds uh, on itself. But in verse 2, he says, As for me, my feet came close to stumbling. For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There were no pains in their death, and their body is fat. Now, I will just say, uh, when, when you read how Asaph keeps saying over and over again that their body is fat, their eye in, uh, is indulged with fatness, he's not saying... Man, I can't stand them. You know what? They're no, they're no better. They're just, they're just fat. You're fat and ugly. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is it's kind of like in the same way we talk about the fat of the land. They are being blessed in a way that does not make sense. We understand that the general rule is if you walk in a pattern or if you walk after the pattern of, of idolatry, if you walk after the pattern of the wicked, we understand the rule is that you will fall eventually. And that you will receive the judgment from the Lord. But the problem is, a lot of the time, we focus so much on the exception, even though it is the exception. But again, looking at it through the eyes of, through the perspective of a staff, how easy can that be when you look at maybe your enemy? Or when you look at the people who are persecu persecuting you, the people who clearly do not care about God or do not care about living their life the way he would have them to live. The same way I'm trying to make sure that I'm living. And I go through great pains to make sure I'm living this way. And yet, what we find is, I'm the one that's suffering. I'm the one that's persecuted. And, and the enemy of God, they're, they're, they're fat and sleek. They're able to enjoy all of these blessings, even though they're going against God. Now, again, you, you look at, especially a book like Proverbs, and, and you know, it's been said that when you go through Proverbs, that gives you the general rule. Ecclesiastes is the exception, because Solomon seems to focus much on the exception of all of those things that seems like it just doesn't make sense. And it doesn't when you look at it, you know, just right at the offset or right at the outset. Um, and so you have to bring your focus back onto God. And ultimately, that, that is the key, I think, throughout this whole lesson is where is our focus? 
It makes us focus on the problem, I would say, more than the answer that is right in front of us. And what do I mean by that? Well, just for an example, look over at Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. Here is what I think is a very good illustration of, of how doubt creeps up and how it really does distract us. Now, you, you're familiar probably with this passage, this story, where Jesus... He comes to the disciples. They're already in the boat, and they've gone far, in, uh, you know, far away from the shore. And they see Jesus, and they're kind of terrified because, you know, no one else can walk on water unless you're God. Uh, and he kind of calms them down. They understand that it's not a ghost, but rather it's it's Jesus. Uh, and especially in verse 27, as he's calling out to his disciples after they see something on the water and they're terrified, he says, "Take courage; it is I. Do not be afraid." But then in verse 28. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, he said, come, and Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. Now, let's just stop there for just a second and just acknowledge that there is at least a good level of faith here in the fact that Peter got out of the boat, that he asked to be with Jesus, to walk on water to get to Jesus. There is some level of faith here. If there wasn't, he, he would have just you know, splashed right into, the, right into the water as soon as he got out of the boat. Uh, so there is some level of faith, but it doesn't necessarily stay there. In verse 30, after he is actually walking on the water and coming toward Jesus, it says in verse 30, But seeing the wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me! And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Now again, we understand that there is at least a good level of faith there in the fact that Jesus or uh, Peter was able to walk on the water to get to Jesus. What is the distinction? What was the change? Well, do you notice where his focus went? No longer was it on Jesus as it was in verse 29, but in verse 30 it says, "But seeing the wind and looking at the surroundings, looking at, you know, everything that was around him, he became frightened." And that, that, when he got distracted from focusing on the Lord and focusing on everything else around him, on his circumstances, that is when he began to sink. And I, I wanted to go through that illustration just to make the point that I think it's the same way today. What happens today is we lose our focus ultimately on Jesus, on looking at the master, looking at the teacher, at how he walked, and we focus on the world that's burning around us. And in some cases, maybe it is actually burning around us. But it's just, it's, 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 it's like the way a parent talks to their child. And when the child is trying to look every which way, but the parents, hold on, hold on. Look at me. Lock eyes with me. Don't look at anything else around you. Just look at me. And don't focus on everyone making loud noises. Don't focus on everything that could possibly get, get, you know, uh, get your attention, all the glimmering, shiny things. Just look at me. And I think it's the same with God, the same with Jesus, that he is trying to make sure that we don't lose focus of him, that we don't shift our focus to something that ultimately uh, has no value. Though it may look shiny and, and it glitters and it's pretty, has no ultimate value. Rather, it's something that looks nice but leads us even further into death. It causes us to sink, uh, as, uh, as it were, in talking about that idea of our faith and, and how doubt affects it. Now, I will just say, I think that this also shows us that doubt compounds on itself. It multiplies. Um, I think sometimes people think that, you know, if we doubt one thing, it just spirals out of, the, out of control. Because if I doubt one thing, that means I doubt everything. Well, that's not necessarily the case. We don't have to go crazy over here. We can just, you know, take a step, you know, take one step after the other. Just because there is a little bit of, bit of doubt, it doesn't mean that, that's, that we are just faithless. 
What it means is we struggle in one area. And what we have to do is really stress on focusing back on the Lord and getting any other, uh, anything else that has our attention, just getting rid of that. And we really have to strive to do that whenever doubt does arise. I was actually reading a book, um, and it, it was, it's written by a clinical psychologist, and he was talking about agoraphobia, which is something I had no idea what it was until I read it and I looked it up. Agoraphobia is actually the phobia of uh, just anything that has to do with going away from your home, out of the safety of your home. You don't like crowded places. You don't like going anywhere foreign. You like to stay indoors because everything outside of your doors is scary. Um, now, that is the dumbed down version, but uh, essentially that's what it is. And as I was reading about that, it just amazed me as he was explaining how people's mind, first of all, it, it just always intrigues me how people's minds work, how you know, people form their personalities. But regardless, as he's talking about how this, this phobia just gets worse and worse and worse, it starts with one bad, um, maybe it's an altercation, just one bad situation. And, you know, so you're, the example you used, he said, so a woman goes into a, a grocery store and she gets really nervous. She has a panic attack as she's at the grocery store because of all of the things that are going on and really all the things that can get your attention because there's a lot of different people there. And she has a panic attack. And so she rushes home and she goes home. And what she's just taught herself, you know, subconsciously, what she's taught herself is, well, outside of the home is dangerous. Inside of the home is safe. Now, it starts with just the grocery store, but then she decides, all right, I'm not going to go to the grocery store. I'm just going to go to the pharmacy or something like that. It's something else. But then as she goes to the pharmacy, as she's walking towards it, her heart starts pounding and she starts to get more and more anxious, more nervous. And what happens? She thinks about what happened at the grocery store. And then she brings those feelings into the pharmacy. And, it, and he just went on and on and on. And how far it can go. It's amazing. Ultimately, it can go so far that someone becomes afraid of their own house. And they have to stay in their room. Uh, and it, it, there are extreme cases where, where that happens. Now, I go through all that just to say negative emotions like that, it self-multiplies. And it's because we focus so much on, on, we focus so much on the bad experience that we then you know, act like that extends to all the other experiences. And it's very easy to let that one bad situation affect how we react throughout the rest of our day, throughout the rest of our routine. And it very well can uh, envelop, it can swallow up the rest of our lives. And so we have to be careful with these kinds of emotions. Make sure that when we catch it, we don't let it run wild. Because, all, uh, because while it's just a spark, we want to make sure that it just remains a spark and doesn't start a wildfire. Um, and so these negative emotions, unchecked, without focusing specifically on Christ, they do multiply, and they can get worse and worse and worse to the point where we just say, well, then, I guess I have all these doubts, you know, because it started with just one thing, it goes into everything, and that means all of my knowledge is compromised in the Bible, therefore, it's, it's you know, we're just going to get rid of it. And that's how dangerous it can be if we don't keep this checked by looking towards Jesus uh, in a, at every turn. Well, th those are just a few thoughts on how I think doubt distracts us from the truth. Um, but secondly, I think doubt also tests our commitment. In verse 10 beginning, back in Psalm 73, beginning in verse 10, picking up where we left off as he's talking about how the, 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 the wicked are fat and sleek. They've set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Verse 10, therefore his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by, drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. 
for I have been stricken all day long and, I ch and, and chastened every morning. And we'll stop there and we'll pick up in just a moment. But look at just in the short, just a few verses here, how quickly that doubt did compound. And, and just how far Asaph, someone who is very engaged in, in the worship, just the worship alone of God, how far even he, his faith, could fall for a moment. Um, and so, so what happens? He's focusing so much on the, on the enemies of God, on the wicked. And what does it say in verses 10 and 11? Ultimately, those same people, the, or I, I believe that what, uh, in the New American Standard, it doesn't capitalize the H in his in verse 10. I think this is talking about God's people returning to this place. And it is God's people who are asking the question, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? And I think, I, I just go through that to say, I think that doubt makes us uh, or it encourages us to start testing God rather than the other way around. It is God who is supposed to test us. But what happens is we allow doubt to, come in, to creep into our hearts and we kind of entertain it, I believe, to a degree. And what happens is we begin to start, we begin to start thinking, well, you know what, if I have this doubt, God's going to have to settle it for me. Now, I think that's the right, way, that that's the right words to use, but maybe not in the best, uh, but a lot of times it's not, said with the best tone what people mean by that is well he's just going to have to sort it out and and he's going to have to prove it to me rather than i need to go to god and, and honestly frankly and try to put these doubts to the test which ultimately is what we're going to in the last point but no people come uh, with a with a poor attitude with a poor mindset ultimately i think this is what it's kind of talking about in james chapter one when it's talking about that person who whose faith is goes to and fro james chapter one and verse two very quickly he says consider all joy my brethren when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing but if any of you lacks wisdom let him ask of god who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him but he must ask in faith without any doubting for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind for that man ought not to speak uh, that that he will uh, rather for that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the lord being a double-minded man unstable in all his ways I don't think this is talking about someone who just never ever ever has doubts rather I think it's talking about a specific mindset like we were talking about just a moment ago. Rather, this is someone putting God to the test instead of letting him put our doubts to the test. Uh, and, and so there's the double-minded man there, unstable in, in all his ways, coming to God in a very poor manner. And so the one who tests God to make him prove himself only receives his promised silence. That's what James says. Listen, if you're going to come to him like that, guess what? He's already answered you. You're not going to receive anything. You're not going to get the wisdom that you're so gen genuinely, sincerely seeking. Because I don't think it's, ultimately, as he's describing it, I don't think it's a genuine, sincere person. Rather, they're trying to make God, I think, uh, maybe in a, in a very petty way, try to uh, answer to every one of their whims and sensibilities. Well, moving on into verses 13 and 14. The way I wanted to put it was we start thinking that the grass is greener on the other side. Now, looking back at verse 13, he says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. What is Asaph saying there? All of this has been for naught. I have tried to keep myself holy. I've been trying to do exactly what God wanted me to do. Be holy for I am holy. So I've been striving after that. I've been trying to be righteous for him. And I've been striving to make sure that I keep the law. And not in a pharisaical way. But in a way that God wants us to. To obey him in every respect. And to do so faithfully. Now, 
He has done that. Yeah, what, what does he see? But that exception, that the wicked, they're prospering and I am being the one persecuted. What is going on? Again, I think that's a question that we maybe even frequently ask throughout our lifetime because there's a lot of things. I don't think that throughout our entire life, certainly there are some instances, but for the most part, our entire life isn't just one low valley. Rather, it's, it's kind of ups and then for, it's up for a while, and then you go back down into the valley, and it stays that way, or maybe it's just a quick, and you, it's just wavering all the way through. And we go between really positive moments and really sorrowful moments. Um, now, I think, ultimately, that's the way Asaph's life was as well. It didn't stay in the valley. Because, again, he is someone who had a very good uh, position to be able to be encouraged by the Lord uh, himself or by the, the works that he was allowed to do, had the privilege to do for the Lord. And so he begins to wonder if he has made the wrong choice in trying to be holy in trying to be righteous and trying to be what God wants him to be because he's the one persecuted while everyone else is, is while the enemies of God are doing what they want and they're not suffering for it. I think that this is actually very um, similar, the emotion is very similar to something that especially younger people struggle with, and honestly this is something everyone struggles with, but especially those who are maybe like in high school around that age. I, I believe it's a legitimate term, but it is FOMO, it's, it's the fear of missing out syndrome. Uh, and I think it's kind of a phobia in and of itself, but it, I mean it, it, it actually, <laughs> is something that people have written about, written articles about. And one article that I read about it, interestingly enough, said that this one symptom of the fear of missing out is only looking at the symbol and not the experience. Now, what, what do they mean by that? As, he's, as they are talking about this, what they're saying is essentially, when you look at someone else's yard, the grass is always greener on the other side. When you look at you know, just one moment in someone's life, guess what? That's all you're seeing. And you don't see the experience that it takes to get there. You don't see all of the things, all of the deeds that they're doing before you get to that one point that looks so glamorous. I think especially about, um, you know, uh, there are a lot of individuals, especially when you, especially when you get into po political co conversations, people will talk about just the, I don't know, this idea of sexual liberty. And, and that just sounds so, that sounds so cool. That sounds so cute from the outset, right? You know, we get to have our, we get to make our own choices. We get to do whatever we want because we are an autonomous body and we get to make our own decisions. Granted, you get to make your own decisions. And that sounds cute from the very beginning because we're talking about, hey, liberty. We use that word, liberty, freedom. Uh, the other Luke actually taught about freedom not too long ago, or preached about freedom not too long ago. And so that sounds really good. That word really appeals to us until you look at the experiences until you look at all of the things that they have to suffer through to get to that one moment that looks so glamorous and so wonderful. And so when, when people talk about the sexual liberty of being able to make their own choices and doing whatever they want with whomever they want, you don't see the moments, maybe, maybe fortunately, but you don't see the moments where the sun reveals the shame of the previous drunken night. You don't get to see and Incidentally, it's not just advertised nearly as much the consequences of maybe something like diseases that you get from those kind of actions. Or something like, people even use the phrase unwanted pregnancy. How can that even be a term? But it's become one, because, all in the name of sexual liberty and sexual freedom. Oh, it looks so good at the outset, but when you look at the experiences and when you look at the deeds, it, 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 it just lacks. And it is so incredibly terrifying 
when you look at all of the consequences and all the experiences that you, that you have to get to just for that one moment of, oh, how, look how nice this looks. Look how nice this is. Ultimately, when, it just, <laughs> when it's just this one moment of just a mere veneer, just a mere display of, oh, this could be good. Well, that's, that's, that's not something of value at all. Now, all of this... All of this, I think, is true, even though God has already made clear the other side is not actually greener. Guess what? He already has given us the answer. All of the things that we might be missing out on, I think especially through uh, Solomon in Ecclesiastes, as we said earlier, Proverbs gives us the general rule as you're talking about things of of this life. Ecclesiastes really focuses on some of those exceptions. Now, I want to read just a few verses here in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. And it says, I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus, I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. Now, uh, sometimes we go through this this book and we think this is just the most depressing thing I've ever heard and to some degree it kind of is but I think the reason that is is because the, here, here's the value without God of this life right, here's, here's uh, the value of this life without God it has none under the sun there is no profit and you think about the man who is writing this Solomon who was king in the most prosperous time of Israel's history and, pro- and very likely uh, more prosperous than any other nation in history. I mean, that's, that's up for debate whether or not, but ultimately it was a very prosperous time. It even says during Solomon's reign that silver became like, you know, just rocks on the street. It, was, it just was so common. That's how prosperous they were. Now, with that being said, not only was, it the, was he king during that time, but he was also, as we often say, one of the wisest men to ever live besides Jesus. So he had all of these things going for him. Plus, he had the authority and power of the king. So he had all of these material blessings going for him. And what is that all to say? He even says, uh, or, or I missed one thing, or, or it was the second thing we mentioned. In verse 9, he, uh, he increased in everything. My wisdom also stood by me. I think it, what he's saying is, I have done it all. I have tried everything. And you see this even more throughout the book. But he says, I've done everything. I've made every decision. And I've tried to go down every path that could potentially give us meaning in this life. That could potentially bring me happiness. And guess what it did? I reached a dead end. It did nothing. And all of these paths, what are they? But the paths that the rest of the world wants to make. Paths under the sun without God. Disconnected from him. And he says, even with my wisdom. You'd think, when you look at that kind of, that kind of claim, people will always say something like, oh, well, you know what? He just didn't do it right. Solomon has more capability, more authority, more power, more opportunity to do it right than any of us ever will. Because even the wisdom was there so that way he wouldn't fall to the same, uh, you know, idiotic, uh, idiotic temptations that the fool would. But even with all of those things, he failed. And what was, what was the point of that whole book? Remember God. Remember the creator in the days of your Don't forget him. He is the only value in this life. In this life. And so, even all the way back into the wisdom literature, you don't have to go very far. Just in this one book, what we find is God has been saying for a very long time, guess what? It may look like the grass is greener on the other side. It may look like the wicked are are, are prospering in one moment. But just because maybe they actually are in this moment, don't forget that rule that they will receive my judgment one day. And don't forget the rule that even though it looks that way, 
You have me, and that is far more valuable than anything that this world could offer you, anything that Satan could offer you. Now, so I think that's how doubt can test our commitment. Uh, finally, I just want to end with some application. How do we, how do we put doubt to the test? How is it that we uh, get past this very negative emotion that really creeps in subtly and just amplifies uh, the, the worst of our terrors and anxieties? Well, I think we have to go to God. Picking back up in verse 15 of Psalm 73. Verse 15, after he has said, maybe I've done everything, uh, maybe I've made all these choices for not, maybe I've been trying to keep myself holy for no reason. What does he say in verse 15? If I had said, I will speak thus, if I had spoken about these things, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Until what? Until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. Now just understand very quickly, this is completely the opposite of the language he was just using, of how he felt about those same men, those same enemies of God. Picking up in verse 21, When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fall, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your good works or of all your works. Now, how, how do we put doubt to the test? Ultimately, you draw near to him so that you won't perish. I especially think verses 27 through 28 is the key. Look at, look at the, the distinction he makes here. The further you get away from God, the, the more certain, the, 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 the higher the certainty that you will perish. The closer you get to God and the nearer you get to God, the more confident, the more certain we can be about our salvation and about our good in him. So I think that is the main distinction. And so when we have doubt, we must bring that to God. Not in a way that we were talking about earlier that someone may say, but they might be putting God to the test. No, but bringing this to him in a a humble way saying, help me figure this out. I, this, is, this is ultimately a prayer of, of Asaph. This is him coming to God with these emotions in, I would say, a scriptural way. There are two ways that we can come to God when we have these kinds of emotions. In a very poor manner and in a manner that brings um, no glory to God, but rather dishonors him. And in one way, I think an example that we see in Psalm 73, in a very humble way, in a way that brings glory to God and honor to him. Hence, the fact that we are going through this psalm tonight. And how it ends in such confidence. Now let me just ask, if you, um, this just makes sense regardless. If you have a problem with someone, is it going to get better unless you talk to them? So one example I like to use is if, if I have, if I question Paige's devotion to me, is it going to make sense if I go to, you know, my dad and start complaining about, well, just, I, you know, my wife? Well, not really because my dad is not my wife. And he doesn't have her mind, and he doesn't have uh, the ability to calm me down the way she could if I just went to her and talked to her about these things. And so if I did question her devotion to me, 
it's not going to be cleared up and it can't be even resolved into just a simple misunderstanding less, unless I go to her and try to put that doubt to the test. It's the same way with God. We have to bring these things to him in a humble way. So how do we do this? How do we draw nearer to him? Just a few things as we've already read in Psalm 73. The first thing I would say is in worship. We can't underestimate any of the things that Asaph writes about in this. In Psalm 73, as we began in verse 15, uh, verses 15 through 17, look at the shift. What is it that ultimately helped Asaph pass this doubt? He says, when I pondered and understand this, it was troublesome in my sight, verse 17, until I came into the sanctuary of God. Now you recall, as we've talked about earlier, and there's a few passages here that shows you the position that he had. He was someone who would be able to walk into the sanctuary and lead the, the worship, lead the, the uh, musical worship to God. And what a beautiful sight that would have been. What a powerful sight that would have been to be able to be in that kind of role. And just in this, I think that there is great encouragement. And, and sometimes I think we overlook this. There is such encouragement. I, I don't know if you've ever heard this hymn, but there is a hymn called um, God of the Living. And, and it kind of harkens back to the language that Jesus uses in Luke chapter 20 as he's talking to the Sadducees saying, Hey, remember what God said. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Is he the God of the dead? No, no. He's the God of the living. And, and there's been times where, where we, we have been in very close proximity to someone who has just lost a loved one. And we have sung that hymn at a funeral, or we sing it just in a worship service uh, very close to that moment of their passing. And it brings tears to the eyes, but it gives so much hope and strength and resolve in a moment of so much uncertainty. To read through those kind of lyrics and think, he is the God of the living. And, and I know that that hope is not going to be unanswered. I have a guarantee that I can trust him. And, they, and the, one, the loved one that we miss, they also have a guarantee that they can trust in. And there are so many other uh, songs that we can sing, songs that even we've sing, sung tonight. I love that hymn, Walking in uh, Heavenly Sunlight. I, I just love that idea of being able to, to, there's been so many moments where I have felt somewhat discouraged, where I have felt, you know, maybe just unenergetic for a moment. And we sing that song, and it's just, I'm not saying tonight, but in the past. It, it, it's revitalizing. And it really, it really is a boon in spiritual lows. There's another song, uh, Sing to Me of Heaven. Oh, that we could think that more often. Sing to me of heaven. Sing that song of peace. In, in the darkest moments, in the most sorrowful moments, let me just keep coming back to being in heaven with God and being able to worship him for an eternity. Let that never leave my mind. And let, our, let us never uh, focus so, too much on the physical things or the material things, but those spiritual things. And so worship really can be a great encouragement, a great boon in those spiritual lows. Well, going beyond that, I, I think we shouldn't de depreciate the value of the assembly, the value of being with one another, those of like faith. I, I think a part of um, the problem here all throughout is that this kind of emotion preys on those who feel more isolated and those who feel like they are lonely for a time. It even shows up in the language as he's talking about, I don't even know if God's there. Especially throughout other Psalms, you see that. And so 
there's a great um, encouragement here as well, uh, and I just want to read very quickly Hebrews chapter 10 uh, in looking at this in verse 22. Again, another passage that we know very well. But he says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking your own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. One very heavy application here is, we need one another for encouragement. And I've said this before, and I'll say it several more times, but encouragement, uh, encouragement is like showers. You need them every day. And that is so true, especially for the soul, the weary soul. And, we, and you're not going to get that kind of encouragement if you try to isolate yourself or if you allow that isolation to go too far we need to look to each other we need to look to our brothers and sisters in christ those who have that like faith just to get encouragement from them and hopefully encourage them back and really what it turns out is to be an endless cycle of constant encouragement and so we need to be focused on on doing that as we come to the assemblies uh going beyond that we need to focus on his word we need to really focus on his word over in uh, verse 23 of Psalm 73 again it says nevertheless I'm continually with you you have taken hold of my right hand with your counsel you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory what is this half saying how has he uh, taken hold of his hand does he mean it I don't think it means it literally what does he say but in just as you see all throughout the Psalms again but I am guided by your counsel and your counsel alone and because of that fact I am able to soar. Because of that fact, I'm able to pick myself back up and continue to do uh, the things that you would have me to do, to try and continue to be zealous for good works, as we talked about earlier this morning. And so we need to be focused on that word. If we're not focused on that word, if we're not constantly bringing our doubts, bringing our, our issues to the word, if we're not already doing that, we will absolutely fall. He almost slipped. But we will go too far if we don't start going to him and, and listening to him more often. Finally, as you read in verses 25 through 26, how do you get nearer to God? What, what does this idea really culminate in? Just as we were kind of talking about a moment ago, I think he must be our final refuge. I think he needs to be the place that we go to first and foremost. That's not to say we don't use anything else. We just went through a, a few things on this list that can help us, that can encourage us. But ultimately, the biggest encouragement needs to be that I have a relationship with God. That is enough. He says that uh, in, ver in verse 25, whom have, whom have I in heaven but you? And he doesn't just stop there. He says, and besides you, I desire nothing on earth. And weren't we talking about that earlier? We can't focus so much on the things, the material things that ultimately have no value. But too many people, and, and frankly, too many Christians put too much stock into the material things that God says will not bring you ultimate joy, but they think, well, okay, this will aid it. No, it needs to be that God is the sole, uh, the, the sole giver of that encouragement, of that joy. And when we develop that kind of relationship with God, we will be able to, I think, keep that kind of doubt at bay. And I will just say, even in the moments of silence, because sometimes, uh, again, uh, coming back to that book that I was reading that kind of stimulated some of these thoughts, Sometimes there are doubts. There are things that can lead to doubt that ultimately have no real bearing. And we have to be satisfied with God as our final refuge. We have to be satisfied with, if I have a question, if he doesn't seem to speak about it, well, guess what? It must not be that important. 
That's the kind of attitude we need to have about anything. If God speaks about it, if it's been revealed, it's something he wanted me to know. If he hasn't, well, while I still want to know, I'm okay with not knowing because he says, I don't need to know. And that's the kind of relationship that we need to build with God if we want to get past that kind of doubt. Well, as we conclude, I will just say this, this hasn't been an extensive study on the topic, but it, I think it's still a very good example of a godly man who worked through his own bout with it. So one question is, are you currently working through the same doubt? As we read through some of those words, have you found yourself maybe praying those same words? That's a good thing, or that you're, that you're going to God in the first place. But maybe you're someone who's just been thinking that and has felt isolated, has felt like you don't have anyone to go to. I hope that, especially if you're a Christian, if you feel like you need some help, that you can look around and you can say, here are brothers and sisters who, are, who have the same goal as me to striving to get to heaven that can help me in this. And then ultimately I can help in the long run as well. I hope that you look around and see that and I hope that you'll utilize them. Uh, if you have that issue, that you utilize them before even this night is out. If you are not a Christian, maybe you're just someone who has doubts all over the place. I would just say, let us show you some answers that God gives. If you think that there's nothing to this, I would encourage you to challenge us. Bring those questions. And anyone here would love to try and help you in that. If, if, if there's anything that we could help you with, uh, regardless of what it may be, how to become a Christian, just how to get rid of some of the doubts we already have in our hearts, won't you let your need be made known? Come forward and let them be known as we stand and as we sing.